Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio. I'm Adam Munster Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com. I'm in the process of lining up some fun interviews for the podcast, but it had been since the late signing period since I put out a new podcast. So I wanted to check in, especially with the news that Vic Oto has left CU to join Cal staff as their new inside linebackers coach. Obviously, Soto just spending two months in Boulder. I'm also going to reflect on the way too early depth chart predictions that I did on buffstampede.com recently. This is going to be a shorter podcast since I'm going at it solo. And aside from the Soto news and unexpected coaching vacancy, there's not a ton going on right now. Spring ball will start later this month. Obviously, we have basketball going on. So I'm going to try to do a March Madness preview with Jake Shapiro next week. It will be coming back to you with quite a few podcasts here in the coming months. You've got mail. I didn't get as many questions for the mailbag as usual. Again, this is a quieter time of the year, but let's tackle a few questions I did get. Let's start with Black and Gold Josh. He asked, what's your inkling about Vixa Oto leaving? Working with Justin Wilcox too good to pass up, or is it an indication of Wilson slash Durrell coaching? So I'll talk about what I know, and then I suppose I'll speculate on the rest. I know Vic Soto told Carl Durrell that he was leaving and taking a coaching opportunity in California for family reasons. He and his wife have five children. And as Durrell said in his statement about Soto's departure, most of both sides of their family live in California. So Soto said they could use additional support. Uh, We also know that 17 hours after Durrell made that statement, Soto wrote on social media, quote, I'll address this once since I now have family and close friends reaching out to check on us. Proximity to support was not on the list of reasons to leave CU. This next opportunity was purely one I couldn't pass up. I'll go anywhere to coach if the opportunity is right. Coached across the country and will continue to do so. I'm thankful for Rick, Carl, and the gang and wish them nothing but the best. My decision was based on a lot of reasons. And thankfully, we aren't in dire need of support at this moment, like the statement sounds. All love. End of quote. I have confirmed that Soto did indeed use family reasons for his departure from CU in terms of explaining his reason for leaving just after two months. So that's what I know. That would lead me to believe that Soto used that as the reason to kind of soften uh, his exit off the staff when he met with Carl Durrell. But I also think it's pretty clear he views Cal as a better opportunity and he doesn't want it out there that he isn't willing to leave the state of California. Other opportunities in his coaching career might present themselves outside of the state of California. And so I don't think he wants that to be uh, the perception of him as a coach. So Back to your question, Black and Gold, Josh. Yes, I do believe Soto views the opportunity to work with Wilcox as being too good to pass up. I haven't heard any friction that he had with Jarrell and Wilson. Soto sounded pretty excited to work with Wilson during his one meeting with the media in February, but I do think it it looks like CU was a placeholder for him. You know, he wasn't going to get retained at USC and, and the opportunity presented himself at CU. And then after just a couple months, you know, what he viewed to be a better opportunity at Cal opened up. And so um, he tells Carl Durrell it's for family reasons when in the back of his mind, you know, maybe that wasn't the motivation. And 
he wants to refute the statement. Maybe he didn't think that, I would imagine he didn't think that CEU was going to put out a statement mentioning family reasons. And that was something that once it was made public, he wanted to address and not have it affect his coaching career down the line. Keith Hayward left Berkeley to become the defense coordinator at UNLV last week. So uh, this is stuff you just can't predict is going to happen. Who is to blame for this? I think fans often want things to be black and white, but we live in a great world, right? For the most part. So I guess it's however you want to perceive it and, and place blame. You know, are you going to blame Carl Durrell from not making someone like Saoto view CU as a kick-ass opportunity during his two months in Boulder? Or is it simply just the perception and where CU's program has been for a long time? And if you start doing that, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole. Uh, do you want to go back and, and blame Mel Tucker for, for bolting after a year, leaving uh, at a time on the calendar when it's harder to attract a new coach? Do you want to go back and blame Mike McIntyre for not building off 2016? Do you want to blame Joe Tumpkin in his horrible domestic violence for being part of the reason McIntyre was not able to build off 2016? Do you want to blame Embry and his staff for, you know, see you arguably being the worst power five program in the country in 2011 and further driving the program into an, really a, an embarrassing state. Do you want to blame Bruce Benson for not allowing Mike Bone to fire Dan Hawkins, making him a lame duck coach and setting CU recruiting back for really a year and a half. Do you want to blame Dan Hawkins for being a total POS, at least in my eyes and, and dragging the program down? Do you want to go all the way back to the so-called recruiting scandal late during Gary Barnett's tenure? Uh, do you, how far back do you want to go? Do you want to go to Rick Neuheisel? I mean, it's unfortunate that CU has, has to be such a fallback for a lot of coaches and recruits. That's a, it's a once proud program relegated, frankly, to some fairly embarrassing times. CU still has a lot going for it. And you have to just keep hoping that good luck is going to find its way to the football program. We've had some small glimpses of it the last 15, 20 years, but not enough to put CU in a position to be an attractive destination for the best coaches and players out there. It's, it's frustrating to be a CU fan. There's no, no way around that. Darrell can build a good foundation and, and try to build on that. It's not going to be easy given the perception of the program right now. Ellie Buff asked, why does getting a contract signed for an assistant coach take over two months? The answer is it doesn't because Mike Sanford, Kyle Devan, Phil McGagan, and Clay Patterson all had their new contracts approved by the CU Board of Regents in early February. I don't know why Saoto and Rod Chance did not have their contracts ready to be voted on then. Maybe Saoto always had one foot in and one foot out looking for a different opportunity. I don't know that definitively. I, I can try to find out, but really it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Saoto's now on Cal staff and CU has a vacancy, which they should be able to fill by the time spring ball starts later this month. I'm hearing here recording this on Wednesday afternoon that they're already zeroing in on their top candidates. When we had Chris Wilson talk to us in early February, it sounded like he was excited about being able to move into the role of outside linebackers coach 
freeing him somewhat up as a defensive coordinator. He does have that experience as a defensive line coach. So that would give Darrell a little flexibility when filling out his defensive staff now with Soto gone. But from what I'm hearing again here Wednesday afternoon, it does sound like they will hire a defensive line coach and then still have Chris Wilson with that plan of having him coach outside linebackers. But there, there is a little bit of flexibility in there, given that you know he has coached defensive linemen for so long. Shine the Buff asked, what's your all-time favorite thread on Buff Stampede? Dare I ask, what's your least favorite? Good question. Gosh, I sometimes feel like I have the memory of a goldfish show. I know I'm forgetting a lot of epic threads that would be great for this question. Um, it cracks me up how threads evolve from a relevant news topic and then ends up taking 10 different turns. And by the end of the thread, folks are talking about something like, uh, they're sharing their fishing pictures or they're talking about the best spots to eat in Cabo or Dan Hawkins or some random topic that has nothing to do with the initial topic. The other threads that really crack me up are when someone starts a thread accidentally with a broken link or a broken photo. Maybe I should just go in there and delete those, but then uh, we'd miss out on some amazing threads on, on the board. You usually get a, a five to 10 page thread that just completely goes off the rails what I'd like for people to do is when they're done listening to this, go on the buffstampede.com message board and, and under the Buff Stampede radio thread, post your favorite threads in the history of the message board or the history of buffstampede.com because I know there's some great ones out there that just aren't popping to the top of my head right now. I want to hear what everybody else's favorites are over the years. There are certainly uh, posts and threads I don't like, but it really is on the inside the herd message board on buff stampede kind of a, a big dysfunctional family you might disagree with other posters on, on a regular basis but at the end of the day it's a board full of buffs fans that wants you to be successful so a uh, lot of disagreements but at the end of the day everybody kind of has the same hopes and desires which again i think dysfunctional family is the best way to describe it my least favorite thread be some of the threads back going all the way back to the Daryl Scott saga late during his recruitment. That would have been what the winter of 07 going into 08. It was good for business. And it's frankly kind of funny to think back on because of how obsessed everybody was with Daryl Scott and what he was going to do, given how big a flop he ended up being. Uh, he did play some at CU, but obviously Rodney Stewart. Uh, far exceeded his production. And then Daryl Scott transferred to South Florida and did okay there, but certainly was never living up to the hype as being the number one running back out of high school. I've received a death threat twice in my life. And both of them came the same week when Daryl Scott signed with the buffs from a couple Texas fans. I didn't take it too seriously. It's not like I thought it, these two nut jobs were actually going to do anything about it, but it wasn't my favorite thing to open up an email and have someone say, if you ever come to Austin again, you're not going to leave alive. I try not to base my perception of a fan base off to lunatic fans, but I can't say I've done a, a ton of cheering for the Longhorns since then. Sorry, Matthew McConaughey, not a big Texas fan after that. 
Speaking of being a fan, though, I actually attended my first CU sporting event as a fan last Saturday. And it's not for a lack of passion or, or anything like that, that I hadn't done that before. But you know, I've just always been working at CU football and basketball games in the past. Jake covers most of the CU men's basketball games, but I filled in to cover the Stanford and Washington games earlier this season. And my wife and I brought the kids down with us. They sat in the stands while I went and worked in the press area. And our kids really got into it. And my wife loves college basketball. So uh, my daughter, who, who now has a CU basketball poster up in her room, wanted me to sit with her in the stands for a game. So I picked senior night with Evan Batty against Arizona as the time to do that. And that worked out great. I went to Arizona State because I grew up in Phoenix and had to pay my way through college. And obviously, in-state tuition costs were going to be a lot easier to handle. So I had to let go of my dream growing up to go to CU and ended up attending ASU. Anyway, my love for the Sun Devils got lost a long, long time ago. I truly do not really care about ASU. In fact, Bobby Hurley and the situation with the football side makes it easy to actually root against them right now, but I still carry that hate for Arizona. The the U of A chant is on my short list of least favorite things in this world. It it really is fingernails on a chalkboard. We had uh, an annoying U of A fan sitting right in front of us at the game and and thank goodness for the buffs uh, to shut him up. And I think it helps having this gig. I I certainly wasn't going to get into it with him, Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a rough first half when Arizona was actually playing decent in that game. Uh, but what an awesome night. You know, I was walking out of the CU event center, talking with Evan Batty after a game recently, and my family was there waiting for me by the parking garage. Instead of just stopping and saying hi to my family, Evan hung around and was asking my kids questions. I think a lot of players will engage with people in public because they understand it's important, but Evan genuinely loves interacting with fans. Just an amazing human being. I have yet to hear one person say a negative thing about him. And, you know, there's a thread on our message board right now talking about whether they should retire his jersey. Uh, I think you'd have to be a little bit more productive in college, have some discussion in terms of being an All-American for that to be something you should do. Um, but that just goes to show you how revered Evan Batty is with CU fans. I recently did what I called a way too early depth chart prediction for both sides of the ball. As I reflect on doing those stories, I'm going to put it into different categories here. There's some that I feel like with these depth chart predictions, even though I labeled it as way too early, I feel like some of these you could put in pen. I feel like some of them you could put in pencil. You feel pretty good about it, but hey, not 100% certainty. Might need to break out the eraser if something happens during spring ball or camp. And then there were some depth chart predictions that I honestly had no idea. It was simply guessing at at this stage before spring ball. Starting with depth chart predictions I would put in pen at this point. I think you start with Brady Russell. He's clearly the top tight end on this football team. He's the most experienced player on the entire roster. I think even though Terrence Lang 
has not necessarily lived up to his full potential at CU yet. I think you still put him in, in Penn as a starting defense alignment. I think you'd probably put Isaiah Lewis in Penn at a safety spot, just given how much experience he has. And he's been pretty darn solid the last couple of years, not to an all conference level, but he's been pretty solid. So I think you feel like he's definitely going to be a starter on this team. I feel like RJ Sneed did enough at Baylor too to feel comfortable putting him in as a starter in Penn at one of the receiver spots. I'm going to go ahead and put Nico Reed in Penn as both a starter at cornerback and kickoff returner. I know it was a small sample size at the end of his true freshman season, but that kid has it. And I think it's pretty clear that he's going to be a big part of this program going forward. I didn't do specialist predictions, but I think it's safe to put Cole Backer in Penn at kicker, freshman Ashton Logan in Penn at punter. That's really the main ones that stand out in terms of, okay, let's let's put ink on this paper on the step chart. And I would be really shocked, barring injury, if any of those guys I just mentioned were not starting when CU set off the 2022 season against TCU in September. In pencil, I'd probably start with Jalen Sami and Naeem Rodman on the defensive line. You could even make an argument uh, to put them in, in pen. But for now, I'll, I'll do it in pencil. Loved what we saw out of Guy Thomas when he was healthy in 2021. I'll put him in as a starter at outside linebacker in pencil. Quinn Perry as a starter at Mike linebacker in pencil. He's not a sideline to sideline player, so he's going to be more of a polarizing player among CU fans, but he plays a physical brand of football and now has quite a bit of experience. I would be surprised if he's not the starting middle linebacker with Nate Landman exhausting his eligibility. I'm going to put Robert Barnes in pencil as a starter at Sam linebacker. He got on the field more as last season went along and, and brings some experience there. Let's put Nigel Bethel Jr. in as a starting defensive back in pencil. That could be at nickelback or cornerback. He was playing more nickelback before he got hurt last season. Was playing well early on last season. He's a guy that I think a lot of people kind of forget about uh, because Christian Gonzalez and, and Makai Blackman played well at cornerback last year, and then Nico Reed had that great end of the season. I think Nigel Bethel kind of gets lost in the discussion a little bit, but he, he's a pretty solid player transferred in from Miami a couple of years ago, uh, started to work his way into the rotation has made a couple big plays for the buffs. Let's put Trevor Woods in pencil as a starting safety. I think we all liked what we saw from him with his limited play as a true freshman would be surprised if he's not a big part of this defense going forward. And then on the old line, I was tempted to put Tommy Brown and Frank Phillip in as starters on the offensive line in Penn. But we don't know yet if Brown's going to play guard or if he's going to be a tackle. And we also don't know yet if Phillip is going to play left tackle or right tackle. Phillip was transitioning from right tackle to left tackle last offseason until he suffered that shoulder injury. And he went in for surgery on his left shoulder. And so when he came back, uh, it was going to be harder for him to block with that left arm. So that's why he stayed at right tackle from that point forward. But do they flip him over to protect the quarterback's blind side? That would not surprise me at all. In fact, uh, you probably should expect him to make that move. 
uh, sticking along with the guys that I would put in on the depth chart and pencil, feeling pretty confident that they're going to have that role. Uh, Casey Roddick is going to be a starter on the interior of the offensive line, given his experience. But will that be at right guard again? Will he get a try at center? That's why I think I would put him in in pencil instead of pen. Uh, Chase Penry at slot receiver, I put in pencil. Like the potential we saw out of him as a true freshman. And so with Dimitri Stanley entering the transfer portal, I think that opens the opportunity for Chase Penry to be the slot receiver moving forward. In the who the heck knows at this point category, I think you have to start with offensive center. I have no idea who's going to start at center. You've got Colby Purcell now off to pursue his dream of being a firefighter. And that really leaves a wide open competition there. Austin Johnson, Noah Fenske, Carson Lee, Josh Gines, and Jackson Anderson have all spent time practicing at center. And so they have a lot of options there, but just nothing that's really established. And so you've got a lot of guys that I don't know if there's clear separation. I, I do like Austin Johnson. He's just been hurt the majority of the time that he's been at CU. If he's healthy, that would be maybe my pick. Uh, but wouldn't even put that in a pencil at this point. Quarterback obviously fits into this category. JT Shrout would probably be my favorite at this point, but Brennan Lewis now has experience. What did that do for his development going into 2022? Is he going to be better at reading defenses now? Is Mike Sanford's system going to suit him better? So a lot of question marks with him. And so I certainly wouldn't put Shroud in there in pen or pencil because I, I do think that's going to be a battle that is going to go into camp. I'd be surprised if one of those two guys grabs that starting gig before then. You've also got Maddox Kopp and Drew Carter that are going to be competing there this spring. Other guys that I have no idea, I talked about receiver, feeling really positive that RJ Sneed's going to be a starter and feeling pretty darn good about Chase Penry being a starter, but what about the rest of the receiver situation? It's really hard to say at this point. Daniel Arias, Maurice Bell, Montana Lamonius Craig, Ty Robinson, and Jalen Jackson have all shown potential. Who puts it together and who out of that group really pushes for the most playing time? That's, that's hard to predict at this point. Also hard to predict who's going to win the starting job at running back. You've got Ramon Jefferson transferring in from Sam Houston, really electric film, was a second team. All-American at the FCS level. And then you've got Alex Fontenot, who's already proven that he can be a starting running back at the Pac-12, but not at that all-conference level. So that's going to be a competition that we're going to see throughout camp. You could even see Deion Smith, uh, another year removed from ACL surgery, pushing for that job. It's a little bit less important, I think, at running back, just because they're going to ro rotate that position. Also hard to say exactly how the depth chart on the defensive line is going to shake out. You've got, like I mentioned earlier, Terrence Lang, Naeem Rodman, and Jalen Sami, who are, you'd probably say those guys are all pretty established at this point. And then behind them, you've got interesting mix. You've got some experienced guys like Justin Jackson, Janaz Jordan, and Jeremiah Doss that haven't at least yet proven to be top-level Pac-12 players, but they've got maturity. Those are guys that have been in the college game for quite a while now. And then you've got on the flip side of that, you've got three redshirt freshmen that practice well for their age, but are young guys. Tyus Martin, Ryan Williams, and Alan Baugh, they were uh, 
the three defensive linemen in their recruiting class two years ago. No clue on how the depth chart at tight end is going to shake out behind Brady Russell. You've got four underclassmen there this spring, Caleb Fourier, Austin Smith, Eric Olson, and Louis Passarello. I liked what we saw out of Fourier in some of those open scrimmages last year. Austin Smith has a pretty intriguing combination of size and speed. And then Olsen, yeah, everybody was so excited about him. He was the top rated signing in 2021. He came in and, you know, things have been kind of quiet on his front, but he was a guy that folks were really excited about a year ago. And so we'll see what his development has done for his game and, and where he might factor into the pecking order at tight end. I'll stop there because we've got five months remaining before preseason camp even begins. And a lot of our spring ball discussion and analysis is going to center around personnel and depth chart battles. Positive news. It sounds like there's going to be quite a few open scrimmages this spring that that are going to be open to the public. They haven't quite announced that yet, but that's the, the word on the street. So it's good that they're going to open things up some this spring beyond just the spring showcase. I recently interviewed the Ralphie program manager, Taylor Stratton. Uh, I interviewed her assistant coach and two of the Ralphie handlers. So I'm really looking forward to running out a five-part series on Ralphie. We're going to start with a look at Ralphie five's retirement. And then we're going to go into the search for Ralphie six, give an inside look at what her training looked like, you know, do a feature on her debut season, which was a success. And then, really look at the program from all angles, including what it takes to make that Ralphie Handler team. It's not an easy process and uh, it's a pretty intensive tryout that they put people through. So everybody loves Ralphie and there's been stories written about Ralphie, but I really enjoy, I think I ended up between those four individuals have about two and a half, three hours worth of tape uh, of asking them. I, I know I asked, Taylor Stratton, 50 questions. And I think the, uh, when I transcribed it, I was at 7,000 words. So, uh, looking forward to kind of paring that down into five stories, but uh, I think you guys will enjoy that. If you haven't done so yet, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast and keep checking out buffstampede.com. Thanks for tuning in.